This podcast is a production of Community Covenant Church in Eagle River, Alaska, a place where real people meet a real God to live in a real world. For more information, check out our website at communitycovenant.net. Open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18, verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little, a little child and had him stand among them. And he said, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes a child like this in my name welcomes me. But if anyone causes one of these little ones to believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned to the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things caused people to sin. Such things must come. But woe to the man through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown to the fire of hell. 84, does anybody remember that date of significance? Anybody? No. On, on June 23rd, 1984, a young man... Um, named Brad married a young woman named Roxy. Tw- uh, 29, 29 years ago, I, I married this woman and I had no idea uh, what marriage was going to be like. In fact, I had no idea then and some days I still have no idea. But we don't have a perfect marriage, uh, so I don't want to make any of you feel badly if you're in a tough spot right now or if you've been in a tough spot and you're glad to be out of that. I mean, there's a variety of places we are. But i, I got to tell you, and she's not here. She's, I left her sleeping in this morning kind of as a gift to her. Uh, but um, I, I couldn't imagine my life differently. I couldn't imagine my life without a companion like uh Roxy. And what this has to do with the sermon that I'm about to preach is absolutely nothing. So take that for what it is. My my wife says to me, she goes, Brad, sometimes you're really intense when you preach, so you gotta get up there and kind of lighten the, lighten the crowd a little bit. So that was my attempt to sort of be a little light. Anyway, we're, we are in a new sermon series, and uh, if you haven't gathered by now, it's called Wild. The unpredictable Jesus. And I think this is a good time for us to think about Jesus being wild. And I don't know if you noticed this. We have kind of wild, uh, uh, plants around. In fact, uh, be careful because maybe in the coming weeks there'll be, um, me riding in on a Harley or dropping out of the See, I, I don't know yet, but we're going to tr- we're trying to create this image of wildness. I had in my mind, you know, this TV show, uh, Bear Gryllis, who a man versus wild. You know, he goes out and does all these crazy things. I'm sh- women probably don't watch that show, but uh, anyway, it's it's every man every man lives vicariously through this guy. He eats bugs and and you know snakes and stuff. It's crazy. Anyway, that was what I had in mind. That kind of that kind of image as I thought about preaching a series of sermons in the summer months here, which we have to get going on pretty quick because winter is going to be here before we know it. 
<laughs> wow, you, you guys are harsh today. Yeah. So this is a series of sermons about Jesus, but it's not just a picture of sort of the conventional Jesus. It's about the unconventional Jesus, if you can imagine that, or as I have called him, the unpredictable Jesus. Maybe that's a better way to talk about him. It's about a Jesus who, who defies our expectations. It's about a Jesus who, who calls ordinary people like you and me into extraordinary uh, lives. And, and you've probably heard me say that many times. And I, I think they say that every preacher has like one or two good sermons. And that's my sermon. My sermon is Jesus makes it possible for us to live extraordinary lives. And, and if we catch that, if we capture that, there's, there, it, the life that we live, even with all the hardship and the pain and the struggle and the not knowing the future and all that stuff, becomes insignificant compared to what we can have if we begin to follow this unpredictable Jesus. It's about a Jesus who's more interested in the lost and the least and the lonely than propping up some sort of false image of religiosity or churchiness or power. And many of us have images of Jesus that that we have carried with us for a long time, probably since we were children, right? You know, we grew up reading the, you know, Bible picture book, and so we have images of Jesus with sheep on his shoulders and children running between his legs and healing and doing all these things. And, and and those are all great images as far as they go. But I think sometimes when we come to the to the gospels and these these incredible narratives about Jesus, um, we take that that image of Jesus from our childhood and we kind of lay that over the top of our of our reading as adults and we miss something. We miss sort of the wildness, the the unpredictability, the un uh, the un uh, characteristic responses that Jesus often gave in a variety of the settings. So I'm going to try to demystify Jesus. In fact, I was sitting in uh, uh, what's that? Jitters. I was sitting in Jitters talking to somebody. And, uh, I think it was Pastor Dan Cross actually from Chugach, and he goes, "So what are you preaching on this summer?" And I go, oh, "I'm preaching this sermon about wild wild Jesus and." He goes, oh, interesting. And he goes, so what's it about? I go, well, I'm going to spend eight weeks in the summer uh, basically um, sort of demystifying this image of Jesus that we have. And and there's a lady sitting at the table next to us, and she started to laugh. And I I could tell she was overhearing our conversation. She goes, that would be good. A a demystified Jesus would be good. Anyway, I I don't know if she goes to church someplace where Jesus needs to be demystified, or maybe she goes here. I don't know. Uh uh, anyway, we have these lenses that we that we read the gospels through, and 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 they sometimes present a picture of Jesus to us, who is sort of meek and mild and uh, nice, and 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 he is all those things, but not only those things. Sometimes our images of Jesus that we carry with us from childhood, frankly, are wrong. And, and you may discover over the course of the next few weeks, if you if you drop in uh, once in a while, that that you are challenged. Your perspective of Jesus is challenged by what you hear 
here, and we need to change those images because if they're wrong, um, those images are shaping how we interact with this Jesus. And in some cases, and I know this is true for some people that are probably here, that you've had a hard time in your life sort of stepping into this place of actually following this Jesus because it's too good to be true. There's nobody like Jesus the way that you understand him or or he's been portrayed to you. You don't want to follow a Jesus like that. And so, especially for those of you who, who've, who've, who've not made a decision to follow this meek and mild Jesus, I'm going to present you with a different picture of Jesus, and I hope that, that that rounds out your perspective of what Jesus looks like. You know, maybe, maybe you grew up in a church or a family where your parents used Jesus to guilt manipulate you into making your bed or, or getting good grades or, getting up and attending church. I won't take a, 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 a poll of hands about how many of us have been guilt-manipulated by somebody uh, because of Jesus. Maybe your present view of Jesus right now is going to reflect uh, a mishmash of these sort of distorted experiences. In fact, some of you, some of you are... are, are maybe like the sanitized version of Jesus, and you're going to be mad at me as I begin to present to you this picture of Jesus that's different. It's, it's going to throw things a little bit off kilter for you. And I'll, I'll apologize in advance. I'm sorry. But don't get mad at me. Read your gospel. So in the next couple of weeks, we're going to take a look at uh, a number of passages of Scripture that I, I hope will provide us with a little different point of view about who Jesus was and what was important in, uh, to him. And what I really want for this to be is a refreshing change for us to, to think deeply about Jesus, who he was, what was important, and, and, and what that means to us. And, and so at the very least, at the very least, what I want to say to you today and the rest of this sermon series is that Jesus was unpredictable in every way. He was unpredictable. And when the religious authorities that thought in the Gospels that Jesus would behave in a certain way because of certain religious convictions that he had and he didn't, that made him mad. In fact, if you want to push this all the way to the end, that's probably what got him uh, crucified uh, in, in the end, was that he did not perform, behave in the way that the religious authorities in his day thought that he should. Now, what the implications of that might be for our discipleship, you know, I'll let you think about that. Um, maybe our discipleship, our, the nature of our religious life needs to be much wilder than it is. You know, you come to church an hour a week, ho-hum, you do your job, nobody there knows that you follow Jesus, you, you go on vacation, you do what everybody else does on vacation, you sleep, fish, you know, whatever. Um, maybe, maybe there's something about this wild Jesus that can change us. And that's what I really hope for. So as we, um, as we launch into this sermon series, we have to get one thing straight for sure. And that is what was important to Jesus. Um, what was the most important thing that Jesus talked about most of the time? Now, 
Um, if I had time this morning, I would open this up and let you, you know, call out to me. Oh, I think Jesus was really concerned about, you know, eternal salvation, or Jesus was mostly concerned about the poor, or this or that. And, and you know, we'd, we'd get a variety of answers if I did that. And you know what Jesus was most concerned about and in his entire ministry? The kingdom. If you don't understand Jesus and understand what he believes about the nature of the kingdom, you cannot understand anything that Jesus says or does. You, you, can, you can sanitize them, you can make them meek and mild, you can do whatever you want with them. If you do not understand that kingdom, the, the, the idea of kingdom was preeminent in Jesus' mind, whatever he said, wherever he went, it was all about kingdom. That's the lens that we have to understand Jesus through. So, as we look at this text today from Matthew chapter 18, we, we see a story that probably is familiar to most of you, a story of Jesus um, and children. And when we've read this text in the past, you, you might even be sitting here saying to yourself, well, you know, what does this have to do with the kingdom? You know, what does this have to do with a wild Jesus? Brad, I mean, you, you know, if you want a, a picture of a wild Jesus, you should have a picture of him, you know, painting a picture of him throwing the, the money changers out of the temple or, or have him, having him confront the demoniac in the, in, in the, in the, uh, graveyard. Those are pictures of wild Jesus. But you're choosing a text that doesn't seem all that wild, but wait and see. Because what we have here is, I think, um, Jesus addressing in this text the significance of the kingdom. In fact, the, the first question that's asked in this text, if you notice, is at that time the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? So the question that's being asked of Jesus before we're told this story about children and millstones and sin and so forth, it's, it's, a, it's a kingdom question. So maybe you've read this text and you've said, ah, this is a social commentary about how Jesus feels about children and families. Ah, sorry. I mean, if you want to make it that, you can. Jesus, meek and mild, feel free. But that's not what this is about. In fact, Jesus is using children as a metaphor to describe something way bigger, way more powerful, and way more significant. He's talking about the kingdom. And he's saying, in effect, the kingdom is illustrated by the way children behave. That's what he's saying. If you want to know what the kingdom looks like, Jesus says, check out this kid. You want to know what the kingdom looks like, Jesus says? Here, look at the, look at the trust that this kid, this child, portrays to strangers, to their parents. That's, that's what Jesus is doing with this text. He's using children to illustrate the significance of the kingdom. Well, what exactly was on Jesus' mind and the mind of his hearers when he began talking about this kingdom sort of stuff? And I'm going to give you four um, kind of essential characteristics of the kingdom that are kind of based in the Old Testament because everything that was taking place at Jesus' time um, has sort of an Old Testament um, um, context that that they all knew about because they they had grown up you know in in Judaism practice, practicing Judaism. So the first thing we have to understand about kingdom is that a kingdom always has a king. 
A kingdom always has a king. And in this case, the, the people of Jesus' day, when they began to hear Jesus talking about king, kingdom, they thought this. They understood this because they knew intimately what it felt like to live under the, the control and the oppression of a king. They knew that. In fact, they were living under it right then and there as Jesus talked. And from the Old Testament onward, not only do people generally live under the rule of the king, but they had an understanding, a belief that God was worshipped as king and there would be a day when all of the earthly kings would be gone and there would be this king, this king who was a representative of God who would finally bring the kind of uh, equity and fairness to, to his rule that they had been expecting all these years. So, so that's the first thing you need to know about Jesus' understanding of kingdom. A kingdom always has a king. The second one, the second uh, thing you need to know about Jesus' use of the word kingdom is the rule of God is, in other words, God's kingdom, is always marked by righteousness, by, by doing the right thing. God is not capable of doing the wrong thing. So, you know, it's pretty hard if, if God is going to be on the throne for it to be any other way than this. And in the Old Testament, kingly rule of God, unlike some of the earthly kings that they had been used to, was based on the standard of fairness for everyone who lived within the realm of the kingdom. While the earthly kings presented sort of this distorted picture of the character of the kingdom, when Jesus talked about the kingdom, he was talking about a king who ruled by doing the right thing, who ruled with honor and equity and integrity and all those, all those words that describe, uh, uh, life under the rule of God. So, the second characteristic of the kingdom that Jesus had implicit in his description was the rule of God is marked by a king who, who is righteous, who does the right thing. The third is this. The kingdom of God is establishing something that will never pass away. That's, that's in the mind of Jesus and his hearers. Earthly kings, of course, come and go. They get killed um, by these, uh, these plots to, to, to wipe them out so that the next king can be propped up. They sometimes die in old age, but rarely that happened in these days. But when God sits on the throne, the kingdom and the king will last forever. There is an eternity that's connected with this kingdom that Jesus is talking about. It was this idea of a, of a coming kingdom that would last forever that really captured the imagination of the people of Jesus' day because, because they were tired, quite frankly. They were just tired of getting all excited about this new ruler only to have that king jack them around and take advantage of them and eventually, you know, do something that, that further oppressed them. They were tired of that. So to hear about a kingdom where it would be forever by a king who treated people fairly, that was what was was uh, capturing their imagination. And then the last characteristic of the kingdom um, that was in Jesus' mind and these uh, people's minds who were listening to him on this particular day was that the arrival of the kingdom will bring shalom, which is a Hebrew word which means peace. The arrival of the kingdom is going to bring peace. 
And, and we can probably translate that even further to say uh, contentment. The, the announcement of God's kingdom in the world would bring an end to, to some of the arbitrary suffering that was going on. The announcement to God's kingdom in the world would bring an end to violence and oppression that many people in, in that era had experienced in their lives. The kingdom that Jesus was talking about would not only provide a glimpse of the way uh, of living now, but it would also reveal in all of its fullness in the end of time. So there was a sense that if we could just capture a little bit of this idea of kingdom, this is going to be just a a small glimpse of what God is going to do in, in, in eternity. And, and you know where you get a, the clearest picture of this is in the book of Revelation. So if you're a Revelation fan and you want to read it, even with all its wild symbolism and imagery, it's about this. It's, it's trying to describe a kingdom that goes on in eternity that's very different than the one that people are used to. So, so for Jesus then, the kingdom is everything. And I will even go so far to say that if we do not understand the notion of kingdom for Jesus, then we, we cannot understand Jesus. And I think I might have already said that. You see, because when the, when the kingdom has fully come, God will, uh, will, God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven, just like we pray in the Lord's Prayer. And those who accept the rule of the coming king will live in the here and now by the power of the resurrection, with the expectation that that the the here and now that we're living is just a glimpse of what God can do in the future. The presence of the kingdom for Jesus begins when those of us choose to follow Jesus and begin our lives, begin to live our lives by the values of the kingdom. See, that's, Jesus is always pushing towards that. You know, he's wanting his followers to choose to live by the values of the kingdom. And uh, we're going to spend the next seven or eight weeks sort of unpacking some of those values. Well, so here we are in Matthew chapter 18, and we see that Jesus is confronted with this question, and uh, he responds by talking about children. You see, Jesus was probably in the midst of a crowd at the time that this this uh, question was raised. And there were probably curiosity seekers in the crowd. And, and there were probably others who just, uh, who kind of were hanging around Jesus because they wanted to see him do another miracle. You know, it's kind of like, you know, hanging around outside looking, uh, waiting for a moose to show up. You know, they're, they're just hoping that, that the moose will come. Or in this case, uh, Jesus will do something that they can go home and talk about. And in addition to this, there were probably some people who uh, had already made a decision to follow Jesus, and they considered themselves part of of uh, his cadre of disciples as he was going about doing his ministry. But as I said already, what Jesus is essentially trying to do in his answer to this question is to provide a picture of what the kingdom looks like. And interestingly enough, he provides us with that picture by referring to children. So the, the next question that I want to address here is, what is it about the nature of children that gives us a picture 
of the kingdom that Jesus is interested in. What is it about children? Now, there's, there's a clear um, description, at least at one level here. Jesus talks about humility as one of the characteristics. But I think by implication, there are a couple of other characteristics of children that also are sort of behind the scenes as Jesus talks about uh, kingdom. So let's, let's take a look at these characteristics of that, that Jesus sees in children that are illustrative of the kingdom that he's, he's announcing in his ministry. Well, first of all, as we see in verse 4, Jesus provides uh, the listeners, both there and now, with uh, the first characteristic of the kingdom that is expressed in a child, and it's the it's the character of humility. Um, if I was to take a poll right now and say, okay, how many of you are humble? Um, you know, those of you who raised your hands probably would need to work on this characteristic. Um, but, but that's the funny thing about humility, isn't it? Children embody this characteristic of humility because they haven't lived long enough to know any better. Right? Children don't recognize that there is a sort of a pecking order uh, that will eventually slot them into the advanced or the remedial uh, class at school. They don't know that. They don't know how good they are of an athlete or or how bad they are. They don't know when when a... they try something they've never done before that if they make a, if they fail that somehow or another that's going to reflect on them somehow. Children are humble because they, they're not afraid to just live. They're not afraid to color outside the lines. They're, they, they're not afraid to get a little frosting on their face when they're eating birthday cake. But somehow, we grow up and become more sophisticated as, a, as adults, and we lose this character of humility that every child has. And Jesus says the kingdom of God looks like this. Imagine that. Go home today, frost a cake, and get it all over your face. The kingdom of God looks like that. And for those of us who have grown beyond these childlike qualities, um, we, we better understand that humility in this childlike sense is exactly what the doctor orders when it comes to life in God's kingdom. This is, this is the pass, at least one of them, that gets us into the kingdom, to live like this. The deeper we go in the direction of honest humility the more significant we become in the kingdom. It's counterintuitive. It does exactly what you would, is the opposite of our own cultural mores, but that's what the nature of the kingdom is like. There's, there's not going to be clawing and, and trying to get to the top of whatever heap you're trying to get to the top of in the kingdom of God. It, everything goes down to the lowest common denominator, which is humility and servanthood. And it's those folks who understand and embody the character of the kingdom. Well, that's the first characteristic. Now, implied in this text, it's, it's not directly here, but, but uh, it's, it's not far behind on the train. It's only a, a car or two back from the engine. And the second characteristic that I think children embody uh, is trust. Trust. 
Children approach each day with a sense of wonder and sometimes uh, abandonment, which which is based on not not abandonment, abandon. Sorry, which is based on the implicit trust that they have in everything around them, right? They trust that when they wake up in the morning, their their mom and dad are going to have breakfast for them. They they trust. Um, that when they call their best friend on the phone and say, hey, can you come over and play today, that their friend is not going to snub them because they got a better offer. They're going to come. They don't have time, children, to worry about their schedule, wonder where their next meal is going to come from. Um, they don't have time to get anxious about their lack of success whatever that may be, because they are too busy, too busy engaging in, in activities that prevent that present themselves to them right now, right here. That's what children do. I remember when my family, uh, when my kids were quite a bit younger, uh, took a trip to Disney World. You know, everybody has to take that, um, that trip to the Shrine of the Mouse. It's kind of American tradition. Um, but And we did it not once, but twice. But at one point, we did it, and my son was quite young when we did it, and we didn't know that it would be better for our kids to be slightly older than they were, but we certainly had a lot of fun. Um, and I remember at one point, we're, we're wandering around inside the Disney uh, complex, and my young son is having the time of his life Chasing seagulls. You know, all of the Disney characters are prancing around, you know, uh, uh, Snow White and Goofy, and he didn't care a whit about any of those. He's chasing seagulls. That's what I'm talking about. Children uh, sort of trust and live in the moment, and it doesn't matter, you know. Mom and Dad don't care how much, how many hundreds of dollars you spent to, to cart us to the shrine of the mouse. doesn't matter. The third uh, characteristic that I think is implied is joy. Joy will not be in short supply in the kingdom. Uh, and I'm so glad about that. Uh, I'm especially glad about that in light of the fact that uh, many of us who are here today were here yesterday um, uh, for the memorial service for Wanda Miller, who died uh, way too early, um, with way too much life ahead of her. And there's a sense of sadness that, that accompanies life, and especially in our context because of this situation, this experience that we share together. But even in the midst of that, there's this joy that, it, that a child exhibits in their life that is a, that is a fundamental expression of the kingdom. And what, what really makes me mad sometimes is the fact that sometimes we church people and churches, we, 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 we take all the joy out of this life with all of the rules and all of the regulations and all the things that we should do and all the things that we shouldn't do. I mean, if I come in next week riding a Harley to illustrate wildness, I'm, I'm probably going to make some of you mad. But I'm going to be having the, the, the time of my life. You see what I'm saying? Why do we do that? Uh, by the way, I'm not going to do it. I'm, I don't own a Harley. But joy, this, this exuberance about life which expresses this, this, this sense of joy in the moment. If a child falls off their bike and skins their knees, 
once they get patched up and get a kiss from mom or dad, what do they do next? They get back on the bike, as if it never happened. They experience joy in light of the circumstances around them, either because they're they're not aware of all of the pain around them, but also I just think it's the way they're wired, and I think it's I think that's what Jesus is pointing to when he talks about becoming like a child to, to live in this kingdom. Now there are other characteristics of children that I'm sure that you could add, and you may want to make your own list and think about it and talk about it with your spouse or your uh, friend or whoever. Um, there are plenty of other things. But having described these characteristics, we, we move in this text and we see what happens next is Jesus starts, begin, starts talking about the obstacles to, to this kingdom that he is bringing. And uh, at verse 6, you will see that Jesus puts it this way. If anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a large millstone, something really heavy, okay, um, hung around his neck so that they might be drowned in the depths of the sea. Now, this sounds a little harsh if you think about it, but this is Jesus' way of warning those who try to impede the character of the kingdom that he is describing in this, pa- in this passage. For those of us who are trying to, to, uh, to trust and to have joy and to express our lives with some level of humility, those of us who are going to try to dampen that, watch out, Jesus says. And you see, that the primary obstacle to embodying this character of the kingdom that I've talked about, humility and trust and joy, is, is sin. So that's what Jesus kind of refers to in this text. Simply put, sin is whatever stands in the way of living our lives in the way that Jesus is describing. C.S. Lewis uh, describes pride like this. A proud man is always looking down on things and people, and of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. (laughs) That's true. Pride keeps humility at bay, because with pride, someone always must get the credit for their their clever wit, for their intellectual prowess, for for their athleticism. But for the humble, the only thing that matters is where those things come from, which, of course, is God. And the person who expresses humility, no matter how good they are, whatever it is that they do, never forgets where the gifts or the treasures or whatever they have to be proud about come from. And if the, if the sin of humility is, is pride, then the sin of trust is fear. Right? The basis of trust is sort of this implicit uh, sense of confidence that the bridge you are walking across will not fail. Unless it's the one outside of Seattle on I-5, then I can't speak to that one. Uh, It's the expectation that the plane that you are shuttling through the sky at, at 500 miles an hour at 30,000 feet, will eventually land safely. It's the belief that your friends will continue to love you even when they find out that you're not perfect. Fear, on the other hand, casts doubt on all the foundations of trust. It just undermines them. 
It wonders whether the vow our partners made on our wedding day will hold up when one or the other is tempted. Fear paralyzes us by by simply casting this shadow of doubt about whether the, the harness keeping us on the roller coaster will hold this time. Fear is the sense that the world is wild and filled with chaos, and it may be, but as a result, you can't trust anyone or anything, and so I'm going to move to Alaska, and I'm going to live in the woods, and don't trespass on my property, or you're going to get a butt full of buckshot. That's what fear does. Did I just say... (sighs) That, That was not in my notes, by the way. If uh, sin is uh, the sin of uh, humility is pride, and and the sin of trust is fear, then the sin of joy is sorrow. Now, don't misunderstand me. There will be times in our lives when we we experience grief. I I get that. That's what it means to be human. But when grief and sorrow become a sin is when they extract that that underlying sense of joy of living, even when the worst tragedies occur in our lives. You know what I'm talking about. We, We grieve for a time, but our grief never extinguishes the joy, the the deep joy. And for those of you who were here yesterday, you know, you know, you saw that. You felt that viscerally as we remembered the life of Wanda Miller. What all these obstacles to the kingdom and, and life in the kingdom pres- present really is a diminishment of what God intends for our lives to be. For, for what our lives can look like. The, these obstacles to the kingdom cast a shadow over this broader and deeper way of life that, that Jesus is offering us and He invites us to join Him in this journey, this, this kingdom quest. Now, you might want or prefer to have a Jesus that's meek and mild and predictable so that you can have your world all tied up and have a nice bow on the box. And if that's what you want, great. But that's not the picture of Jesus that the Gospels portray. Not for a moment. Jesus is wild and unpredictable, and he's calling us, you and me, today to walk with him, to follow him into wherever that wild character might go, into that kingdom where, where the, the, the top is turned upside down and the bottom, where the poor uh, become rich, where, where everything that we think about in terms of our pecking order of status and superiority is different, is upside down in the kingdom. That's what Jesus is calling us to. So here's the invitation and a little bit of a challenge. I must confess that I want to leave with you this morning. If it's true that Jesus invites us into a life that is wild, but is characterized by humility and trust and joy, 
so that we may experience a, a, a taste of, a glimpse of God's kingdom now and in the life to come. Why would you want to pass this invitation up? Why? If it's true, if it's true that Jesus invites us into a life lived to the fullest in God's kingdom, a life that is characterized by, by all of the elements that I've described, and maybe even more, here's the hard part. And listen very carefully. What do you need to do right now in order to realign your life so it looks more like the kingdom and the character of the kingdom that Jesus is talking about and less like your little kingdom that you're building? The kingdom of Bob or the kingdom of Carol or the kingdom of Susie or Jim or Carrie. What do you need to do to begin building your kingdom less and Jesus' kingdom more? You see, this is kind of where the rubber meets the road, isn't it? Which kingdom would you rather pursue? That's the question that I am asking you because that's the question that Jesus is asking his disciples throughout the Gospels. Which kingdom would you rather pursue, yours or God's? And it isn't until we are honest with ourselves and God about our answer to that question that we will be able to make the necessary changes that will result in a life that is filled with humility rather than pride, trust rather than fear, get this, joy rather than sorrow. It is, it is my genuine hope and desire that during the next few weeks this summer, as each of us is confronted by this unpredictable Jesus, this wild Jesus, that we will become more willing than ever to follow Jesus wherever his kingdom may lead us. And I don't care if you've been a Christian for your whole life or you're sitting here and you haven't decided whether you're going to follow Jesus or not. The question still works for both of us. That's my hope. Will you join me in prayer to that end? Humility, trust, joy, all characteristics of your kingdom, God, that we must confess we don't always express very clearly in how we do our dealings in the world. This week, will you provide us with yet one more opportunity to choose these rather than pride and fear and hopelessness 
Will you change us from being purveyors of our own kingdoms into people that are wildly committed to yours? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.